Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, June 10th, 2018, we continue our series titled Ephesians, Made Worthy, Walk Worthy. Today's sermon, An Observable Walk, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Enjoy! Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 15 through 21. If you can remember back to uh, January when we began our study in the book of Ephesians, you remember that we told you that uh, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, actually breaks into two natural sections. First three chapters is one. The second part of it is obviously four, five, and six. And the first three chapters really were talking about the amazing things that God has done for us and he's done in us. And we talked about the fact that, you know, God loved us before the creation of the world, that he, you know, he chose us in him, he he adopted us, that he brought us into a brand new family. He made us alive when spiritually we were dead. He's given us a purpose to live by, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's so many amazing things that God has done for us. But then when you get to chapter four, the focus changes. And the focus moves away from what God has done to the focus starts to turn in on us to what we're now supposed to do with our faith. And Paul makes this statement right from the very beginning in chapter four, verse one, he tells us we're to walk worthy of our calling. And that's sort of, you know, given us this parameters of how we start the whole series. You know, we're supposed to walk worthy because we were made worthy. What Paul's talking about is how we live, how we carry ourselves, the things that we say and we do, the witness that we have before other people. It's all observable. You know, you and I live observable lives. The world's watching We live it in front of our neighbors. I mean, they know how we live. They see us. They hear us in the backyard. They hear the things that come when the windows are open. Our coworkers, they know all about us. They see us in the stressful moments. They hear how we treat other people in the office. They see how we treat customers. They see when we put on the happy face or just the normal side of us. Unless I'm living some kind of a secret lifestyle, It's not that hard for us to peg who a person is. We just watch what they do. You know, it's not always easy living a Christian life because very often the Christian life is counter to culture. It was that way in the first century, certainly. And you know, the truth is it hasn't really changed today. 21 centuries later, I mean, there's still lots of distractions that we have to learn to live with. There's still lots of challenges. There's still way too many options for us in life. And so faith-wise, it's vital for for us to start on this process of looking for clear direction from God in his word on how we're supposed to live our lives and what pleases him. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. Follow along with me as I read verses 15 through 21. He starts off in verse 15 and he says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, 
always giving thanks, always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I don't know if you caught this or not, but did you catch the contrast there? In three of the verses, in verse 15, 17, and 18, he makes a real contrast, and he uses the word but in the middle to sort of change it off here. For example, in verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, that is unwise but is wise. So in other words, there's a contrast here. It's possible for us to live a wise life or an unwise life. You can see that. Then you drop down to verse 17, and he tells us here, he says, therefore do not be foolish, but, but understand what the will of the Lord. In other words, it's possible for you to understand what God's will, but it's also possible for you to walk foolishly. And then in verse 18, he keeps going. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, you have this opportunity to be filled with wine, that's one type of Spirit, or you could be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the contrast here is real, and the reason why he brings that up is we live in a contrasting world. We're asked to live differently than other people around us. And so to do that, we want to make sure that we can hone in on exactly what God wants for us this morning. And I'm going to pray and sort of make sure our minds are ready for that. Would you join me? Father, this morning, as we look at the simple things you're going to ask us to do, Lord, I pray we'd be focusing on you. And we'd want what you want, Lord. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the observable life. We're gonna look at that this morning. And the observable life is gonna have two things that you and I need. The first one you're gonna see in verses 15 through 17 is that is about living purposefully. We're supposed to live with purpose. Look at verse 15 again. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise. And that look carefully there is the Greek word akrobos. It's, it word means examine. Paul is saying, examine yourself. Examine how you live. Pay really close attention to it. You know, we live observable lives. And so he's saying, you've got to stop and you've got to look at what you're doing. You've got to try to live that examined life as opposed to the unexamined life. Well, why? Why can't I just do whatever I want to. Well, because it's possible that even as a believer that you and I could live unwise lives. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Keep your finger here in Ephesians and I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Back to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now the context here that Paul uses here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 is the Olympic Games. See, he's, he's writing to the people in Corinth in Greece and he wants them to understand this truth and so he uses something they're very familiar with. They're very familiar with the athletic competitions that took place there. And so he wants to sort of bring them to this point where they can see how important it is for them to watch how they're living their lives. So he says in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable breath. In other words, they get this simple little like garland when they win. But we, we run for something better, an imperishable wreath. So do not run aimlessly. Do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
And what he's saying here is the life that we live in front of people, that observable life requires us to have a sense of self-control and a sense of discipline in our lives. Look at verse 16. He's going to tell us why. He says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, a part of wise living is making good use of our time. And you know what really hit me is this was actually written 2,000 years ago and they had time problems 2,000 years ago. Anybody here ever struggled with time issues? I mean, this hasn't changed, right? The fact that it hasn't changed tells me it's an issue of human nature. I mean, just something that we can easily fall into. In fact, it might even be worse today. I mean, we may be biz busier than we've ever done. I mean, to, in today's day and age, we don't think about slowing down a lot. What we think about is how many more things can I throw into my schedule? How many more things can I get done? If I can stay on this list and mark off all these things, I've really succeeded. We even live in a world where we've invented things that were supposed to make things every, you know, quicker and easier and, you know, People pull out their laptops, their tablet, their TV. The worst of all, of course, is the phone, right? I mean, we live in a world where it's really difficult to go two or three minutes without going, just to make sure that we're caught up on everything. And this is the whole world. I've been in Haiti and see it happen, and I thought, oh, well, maybe everybody doesn't have a phone. Oh, they all have a phone. The very things that we invented to free us up and to improve life seem to be consuming more and more time now. See, this whole issue of time and, and redeeming it back again is a real major issue in Paul's life. I mean, keep your finger here in, in Ephesians. Go over to the right to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, look at verse 5. Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of of the time. Well, the question is, how do you do that? How do you make the best use of our time? Well, really, it comes down to a simple thing. We've got to set priorities. Now, here's, I know when even just saying that, that who this crowd is. They're all going, oh, I have priorities. Well, then maybe we rephrase that. Maybe we need to reprioritize my life. You see, my life is not all made up just of a to-do list. I'm not going to be a success at, at 90 years old when I've checked off every single thing on my list, but I've missed the most important things of life. That's not how it works. Maybe that reprioritizing my life is going to change what I do with the 24 hours that I get because God is not going to give you, I don't care how hard you pray, God is not going to give you three or four more hours in a day. He's already given you enough to handle in one day. We just have to decide what is going to get downsized, what's going to get cut. Now go back to verse 16 there in Ephesians 5, because he's going to tell us why this is so important. He says, because the days are evil. Well, so much for that thought that the good old days were back in the past, right? Verse 17. He says, therefore, in other words, as a result of the days being evil, because he's always looking back when he says, therefore. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish. You know, when I was studying this week, I started realizing that 
the Bible actually has a lot to say about foolish living. You know, you can go back into the wisdom literature in the Bible. You can go back to Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, and it really carefully describes foolish living. For example, just listen to some of these things. In chapter 1, in Proverbs chapter 1, it tells us the fool does not want to be told how to live. That they actually despised wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 12 tells us that the fool always thinks that they're right. Always. About everything. If you go to chapter 18, a fool likes to express his opinion, but they're really not inclined to listen to your opinion. You go to chapter 18 and, and chapter 29 and put two together here and it talks about the fact that a fool will more than likely, because of his mouth and his anger put together, get himself into a fight. Because that's what they do. But the most interesting one as I was going back through this whole foolish living thing was I went back into the book of Psalms and in Psalm 14.1, it describes a fool this way. It says, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, this is the person who will foolishly live a life outside of the knowledge of what God wants them to say or do. They're going to do it their own way. What they think is the best. And so they neglect or they need to go, uh, ignore the things that God wants them to do. So verse 17 tells us that this person needs to seek to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, that tells me a couple of things. One, it tells me that God's will is knowable. And two, it tells me that he expects me to search it out. The fact that God's will is knowable means some interesting things. For example, it's not some deep, dark secret that you have to turn to this page and go halfway down and look for a certain letter, you know? I mean, it's not something that they make movies out of. You don't have to do some mystical pilgrimage to go find it. I mean, I remember, you know, years ago, uh, Tyler McGrath and I took uh, a large group of kids to Spain on a mission trip, and one of the places we went to was a place called Santiago de Capostela. And, and there was this place here that ended a people's pilgrimage, and they would literally walk like 100 miles, and they would do the last mile on their hands and knees, because they were searching to try to find this, this deeper picture of what God really wanted for their lives. And so, you know, about 100 yards from the, the end thing there, it was like, there was like blood on the ground from people that, you know, that they were on their hands and knees. And it, this was a tough situation. It's not that hard to find God's will. You don't have to go out in the middle of the desert and spend, you know, weeks by yourself weeping and wailing. The Bible is really clear about God's will. In fact, since we're in it and since it mentions it, I'm going to quickly give you God's will this morning, okay? Keep your finger here in Ephesians, and I want you to go over to, to, the, to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, here's the first thing. God desires that you come to know him, to believe in him. Go back over to the left from Timothy there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, here's what that means. God's will is you morally live different from the world. If you're in Thessalonians, go over to chapter five. Look at verse 18. Paul writes and he says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So in other words, God wants your attitude to change to the point that you're thankful for everything. Go back to Ephesians 5. Look at verses 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, God wants you to learn wisdom, and he wants you to live it out. Two more. Keep your finger in Ephesians there and go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Just before you get to John, to 1 John. 1 Peter chapter 2, which by the way, when we finish the book of Ephesians, we'll start off into a study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's where we're going next. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 15. It says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, God wants you to have a visible testimony in your life. One more. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six, look at verse 33. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things, everything you've ever wondered about, worried about, they'll be added to you. Now, let me just tell you, it's not that hard to figure out God's will. You say, well, wait a minute. You know, for, for the single people, they're all going, wait a minute, you didn't tell me who I'm supposed to marry there, right? I mean, because we've all prayed that, right? I can remember being in college, you know, and, you know, I, I thought, you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm an athlete. I can do, you know, whatever I want to. I remember going to the prayer chapel and getting on my knees and praying, okay, God, I really don't care whether you give me good grades or I don't care about the, who my roommate's gonna be. I don't care about anything. Could you just tell me who I'm gonna marry? And we've all, probably all done that at one time, right? You know what? That comes under Matthew 6.33. You know, if you just seek first the kingdom, he'll give you that stuff. But what he wants you to do is seek his kingdom. Our problem is we have a tendency to seek our kingdom first. We have a tendency to want to do what's best for me, what makes me feel comfortable. And then we have this caveat we put at the end. And by the way, after I make plenty of money and do all the things I want to, then I'm going to give my time to the Lord. That's not God's will. God's will is I seek first his kingdom. If you follow those simple things that we walk through right there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I guarantee you, you will be right in the center of God's will for your life. Now there's a second thing about the observable life that, that Paul requires of us here and that is living in the spirit. In verses 18 through 21, and I'm gonna invite the band to come back up and enjoy, uh, join me here Look at verse 18. Paul writes and he says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine. That is a pretty clear command. 
You're probably not going to, you know, question whether what you're supposed to do on that one. It's really clear. Now, why does he say don't do that? Well, he calls it debauchery. It means foolishness. It's a waste. And by the way, alcohol causes us to do some very foolish things at times. Unwise things, like with your money, or with your, your time, or with your body. Things that we don't have the ability to do anymore, like drive, if we've had too much to drink. Alcohol creates a battle for control in our lives. When the only one that should be in control of my life here is God's spirit. And again, you see the contrast. He says, don't be you know, drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. You know what's interesting is, I started thinking about this. Alcohol actually is a depressant. And I, I, you know, I'm not really sure that in this day and age, when there are so many different things in our world that can depress you, do I really want to be more depressed? I mean, that's a, that's a rough thing. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit is a stimulant in my life. It's the place where I get hope. It's the place where I get courage, where I get direction, where God gives me clear ideas on how am I supposed to control my words and my thoughts and my actions. And when you get to verses 19 through 21, Paul's going to do something different here. Paul's actually going to talk about here is because come off of verse 18 where he talks about being filled with the Spirit. From verses 19 then through 21, he's talking about three signs here that the Spirit is in control of my life. And he starts off, the first sign here is worship. That we're supposed to live a worshipful life. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is in control of my life, I will become a worshiper. So when the Holy Spirit is in control of my life, one of the key things that happens there is I'm a worshiper. But verse 20 says, I'll also learn to be thankful. I have a thankful heart. Look what he says. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful to God means I give God credit for everything. When God is in control, then I begin to remember things like James 1:17 that says that every perfect gift comes down from, from heaven from God. And I'm thankful because I realize God has blessed me and He cares for me. There's a third sign that the Holy Spirit is in control of my life. And that's in verse 21, and that is mutual submission. Listen to what it says. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Folks, that's all about the dignity of every single life. To submit means I don't always have to have my way. You know, as Christians, I want to encourage you that we, more than anybody else, need to be submission conscious. We could never let the word submission slip over the line into abuse or control. That is not God's plan. You have completely missed God's plan if you think that's true. And the problem is that's happened actually in the church before, specifically to women. There's been a redneck mentality it has been totally unbiblical that has completely taken submission and laid it down at the feet of women, never expecting that the whole of every single believer, that every person 
is supposed to find a place of submit, submitting in their lives. Not just women. Paul is clear here that we're to submit to one another. Next week, Thomas will have a chance to present two wonderful pictures of submission through service to each other that just fulfills this perfectly in verses 22 through 23. Of course, Jesus is the model here. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. But what's important to understand here is this. Jesus wasn't less than the Father in any possible way. But what Jesus' submission to the Father meant was that he realized that the Father had accepted responsibility for him, for our sin, and for our redemption. And Jesus accepted that. I'll give you another example. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, Eve actually ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree before Adam did. But God held Adam responsible. And the reason why he held him responsible is because in chapter 2, verse 15, God told him to watch over the garden, and he didn't. He failed to protect his bride, and God held him responsible. God did not tell Adam to dominate your household. God did not tell Adam, you always get your way or you get to make every single decision. That's not how submission works. He failed in his responsibility to protect his bride. And so in Ephesians 5.21 here, submitting to one another is really about acceptance of responsibility. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's you. That's the way it works. And you see here in when he talks about the leadership of the Holy Spirit in my life, I become a worshiper, I become thankful, I become respectful and submissive. Sometimes I lead, sometimes I follow. This is who God has created us to be. Would you pray with me? God, would you help us, Lord, to walk exactly as you want us to walk, with wisdom and with our priorities clear so that we can honor you in all that we say and do. Make these things real in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 